Is this good? Yeah? needs to be just a teeny bit more. There, is that good? Okay, thank you, that's great, thanks. <laughs> okay, good morning, everybody. Um, our Exodus reading this morning uh, is one of the most quoted and cited passages in scripture. And it was wonderful to hear it in Psalm 103 this morning. And you'll remember that last week when Cynthia was preaching, uh, we heard it in the voice of Jonah, who was so angry, he was complaining about it. He says, you're a gracious, compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in loving mercy, because he wanted the Ninevites to be, you know, destroyed with God's justice, but instead he, he had compassion on them when they, when they repented. Today we're going to also see the themes of outrageous grace and justice echoed in our reading in Matthew 18. This time, though, it's going to be about how we respond to grace in the community of Jesus. We are to imitate God's forgiveness of transgression, but no, by no means overlooking guilt. So I read the first part of uh, today's reading because we want to have the clear context that actually in, this is the community of Jesus that's being talked about, and it's uh, in the community of Jesus under the new Torah of Jesus that we heard about in the Sermon on the Mount, we see that there is a new way of being together in the community where we actually confront sins, but also have outrageous forgiveness. And today we're gonna to focus actually on the parable um, that comes afterwards. So in fact, Peter's question to Jesus uh, was, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And actually that question reveals that Peter gets it. He knows that Jesus is talking about forgiveness in the community. In offering his answer of as many as seven times, he's offering what to him seems like a really outrageous grace kind of answer. And Jesus' answer to him back is even more outrageous. He says, no, 77 times. So this feels like an unimaginable level of grace that is required for forgiveness. But Jesus doesn't badger Peter with, you know, principles of the kingdom and philosophy of humanity and see the sweet. He actually tells him a story. He gets right to Peter's imagination. He tells him a parable. And in that parable, we see in that story, in addition to the integrity of the story, as we look at different levels, we see a parable also as a mirror. We begin to see ourselves in the story. But even more important than the mirror is that it is actually a window into the character of God. So um, just before we start into this, like many of Jesus' parables, we need to hear it a little bit as the audience might have heard it. So we have to be aware that the audience that Jesus would have been speaking to would have been predominantly workers of the land who live as subsistence farmers and are, or are day laborers. And there's a minority of landowners who often own a lot of land and have indentured servants. We also hear two units of money in the parable. One of them is a denarii, so that's like a day's wage. And a talent is approximately 20 years of wages, so very different talents. And then finally, we hear reference to prison. This is different than our sense of prison, which is often used for punishment against crimes. In, in those days, prisons were typically used as a debtor's prison when you, people had out, outrageous debts. 
So maybe, Scott, we could put up that slide as we just uh, come, uh, go to prayer, and prepare our hearts. Lord Jesus, as we, as we listen to your parable to us today and come under the authority of your word, would you help us not only see the mirror of ourselves, but also the grandness of your generosity and graciousness. And Lord, as we come under the authority of your word, would you transform us to be your people? Okay, so let's go, starting at verse 23. Jesus, therefore, here actually refers to the 77 times. And he's going to say, basically, he says, um, I'm going to tell you a story so that you have a, a greater capacity to actually forgive those 77 times. When he says the kingdom of heaven can be compared to, he's saying, I want to give you a glimpse about what the world looks like from God's perspective. And we have a lot of comparison and contrast in this story. And as we go through the story, I want you to notice that we have four scenes. The first is a scene of judgment and a canceling of a debt. The second scene, we see grace being trampled. The third scene is where justice is demanded by distressed servants, and then we finish with a final judgment scene. So let's go to the major judgment scene at the beginning. This is a story of a king who wishes to settle his accounts with his servants. This is a recurring motif in Jesus' story, where somebody is returning after an absence, a king is returning after an absence to see how things are going with the servants that he left in charge. Now, for Peter as a devout Jew, he would have immediately recognized this as a story, the enduring story that actually is in the Old Testament again, of Jehovah leaving his people with you know, instructions and then coming back and saying, what have you done? So this would definitely, it's not just Jesus, this is something that has significance with all of scripture. So this is a judgment scene where he comes to settle accounts, you can imagine almost like a court scene, and a servant is brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So again, this is in, emphasizing the formality of the judgment scene. Now we have to talk about this 10,000 talents because this is an outrageous sum. In fact, I think that 10,000 talents is Greek for gazillion. It's just like unimaginable amounts of money. 10,000 talents, if we think about 20 years wages, a talent, then that translates into 200,000 person years of salary. You think, how did he even get to that debt level of debt? And so it's really much more about something that would be a budget of the city of Nineveh, for instance, rather than one person's debt. And then it goes on to say, can we go on to the next one? And since he could not pay, which is kind of almost comedic, right? It's like Jesus' little sense of humor, since he could not pay. Yeah, no kidding. The master ordered that some form of payment be made by selling the servant along with his wife and children and everything he had. He knew that there was no way that this could be paid off, but he was going to get at least some of his costs back. So the servant, please, and he fell on his knees and implored him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Clearly the servant fails to comprehend the depth of his debt. Imagine 
if the master had agreed and said, okay, I'll let you pay everything back. Uh, imagine how long it would take to pay off that debt. So I've calculated very briefly, and it's you know 40 years of uh, uh, adult salary. It would be about 900 years of people, excuse me, excuse me, it's, it's, no, it's worse than that. 5,000 years of people's adult working lives which if I think about it for, as a number of generations, imagine inheriting this kind of a debt as a family. It would be about a thousand generations. I'm, I'm just making, it's actually 900 and something, but I think it has this resonance with the Lord forgiving for a thousand generations, right? So imagine this debt being passed on. And I think that the resonance that it would have with the disciples of the time is actually the recognition that Oftentimes in an honor culture, people inherited not so much debts, but offenses that had been committed against an ancestor. And then a family was obligated to venge, revenge the offense to the ancestor. And for thousands of generations, we could get into cycles of vengeance where entire people groups hated each other because of a now long forgotten offense to an ancestor. So Jesus is saying, we, this is the antidote to revenge. So the king's gracious respond, uh, response was to extend a grace. Out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave his debt. The sense of pity, compassion, mercy, these are the words that we hear. It is the act of placing oneself in the other's shoes and experiencing the, the absolute helplessness of their situation and coming to help. When it says that he released him, that's a hyperlink to the, the reading that we had, the verses before where he says, what you, what you release, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, what you release on earth will be released in heaven. So this act of releasing. However, I think it's important to realize that although the servant's debt was released, the money was still gone. The money was still misspent. Who absorbed the cost of releasing the debt? The master, the king did. The cost remains. So it's not for the servant, he got to zero debt, but the master was left with 200,000 years of debt. So as we listen to this close of the judgment scene, we hear, first of all, that forgiveness does not mean saying that the offense doesn't matter, that an injustice was not done. Sometimes to forgive is to absorb the cost, and that hurts. We also hear that forgiveness is the antidote to the vicious cycle of revenge, and it is the process of releasing somebody into God's justice and judgment and grace because we can no longer do that. In the mirror of this parable, we're invited to reflect on our own indebtedness to God and to have a glimpse of what it costs God to release us from our debt. We move into the next scene, which is a scene of grace trampled in the, great, in the servant's great, ungracious response. When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. Now notice that he found him. He went looking for this person who owed him money. It's not like he ran into him in the market square. He went looking for him. He went to gather his money. Now, 100 denarii is not 
nothing. It's five, six months debt of, of wages. So it's not insubstantial. But we as the audience are comparing five months of debt to 200,000 years of debt of wages. But the reaction of this servant is completely different than the master's. He grabs him and he begins to choke him and say, pay the debt. What is the emotion that is being expressed? It's a question. Anger. He's so angry. And his, so his fellow servant, he falls down and he does exactly what this servant had just done before in the previous scene. He falls down and pleads with him and says, have patience with me and I will pay you. This is identical to what he had said and yet he does not hear it as identical. He hears it as something whereby he gets to exact his justice. He refused and he went and put his fellow servant into prison until he should pay the full debt. So here, as we close this scene, we look at the effect that anger can have in twisting our capacity to forgive. Jesus warns us in the Sermon on the Mount that, that anger and contempt is a dangerous emotion. He says, the Torah says not to murder, but I tell you, don't even be angry with your brother or else you come, you're liable to judgment. Jesus warns us that it's not just our inner private emotions that are at play, but actually how they get expressed also in our behavior. You know, when we're angry like this servant was, it just feels so righteous, doesn't it? We're so angry at this violation that we can actually become blinded to anything other than our own wanting to exact justice. In scene number four, the distressed servants look on and demand judgment. Thank you. The, their reaction is different from the anger that we saw in the slave. They look on with distress and sadness. And in that posture of distress and sadness, they bring their concerns before their master. So the lesson at the close of this is that unlike anger, distress and sadness is the appropriate stance before which we stand before God and ask for him to bring justice. And in Luke 18, in a similar parable where Jesus was talking about the importance of persistence in prayer, he ends the parable by giving the moral. He says, will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? I tell you, he will give them justice and speedily, although I don't think he does it quite fast enough personally, but sorry. Sometimes it seems slow, but we have this certainty that God will bring justice. And then in the final scene, we actually have a final scene again of judgment, and this time the execution of justice. The master hears the servant's plea for justice, and he summons, again, a courtroom scene, he summons the servant, and he says to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant who pleaded with you as I had mercy on you? says in anger he delivered him to the jailers until he could pay all his debt so the parable scenes the this scene ends with a verdict you wicked servant and then also a sentence of delivering until he could pay everything the whole debt jesus moral here is that so also my heavenly father will do to all of you and that's plural if every one of you does not forgive your brother from your heart. 
this is so sobering. And for me, I think it had potentially disturbing implications because if the master represents Jesus canceling our debts, does that mean that I can be liable at the end of time, that I won't be, that my salvation won't count? And so I brought this before the Lord because I was really worried about that. And I got a real clear no, that's not what it's referring to. It's not referring to the debt that we owe God. You'll notice that the servant, uh, the master says to the servant, you wicked servant, not because of the original debt. He doesn't hold his original debt against him. He's, what he's saying is, you did not respond in the mercy that I had shown you. Then why does he give, why does he, why does the sentence involve the full payment of debt? And what I heard from the Lord was two things. One of them is in the Lord's prayer. It says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And Jesus himself in the commentary on the Lord's prayer says, if you forgive others, then your father will forgive you. If you don't forgive others, then you will not be forgiven. And then later on in uh, chapter seven, he says, judge not that you be not judged. With the same measure, that you are using to judge, that measure will be used against you. It's just the consequences. When we judge others, we often come under the same kind of judgment. And I think that that's what the Lord is saying to us. So the master forgave the irresponsible servant without imposing conditions on him at the time. But he had a clear expectation that this was going to change his behavior into the future. And I think that that's what Jesus is telling us here. This gives us a window into God's character of being compassionate and merciful, but by no means clearing the guilty. And maybe we're hearing in this too, that if appreciation for God's grace does not move us to acts of forgiveness, maybe awareness of his judgment might. So what's the gospel in this sobering message? You know, when Jesus came and, and Matthew says he was preaching the gospel, what he was saying was repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Like, how's that gospel? Like, that's not the gospel I grew up with. So, but I think there is gospel. The gospel is, first of all, repent. Change your way of thinking. Allow yourself to recognize the depth of your deficit before God and then experience the release of that debt as you recognize the infinite cost to him. The other thing in your thinking to change is to actually trust and believe that Jesus is right. That to live in submission to this gracious king is much, much better than to live into the submission of your own kingship, the own kingship of unredeemed humanity, which always demands revenge. Imagine the kingdom of heaven is near. Imagine what it's like to live in the kingdom where this anger that you feel, every offense, especially in the church, sometimes it hurts even more. Imagine the release that you feel under God's kingship to let it go, to release those offenses into the care and justice of God instead of your own. Imagine the freedom from resentment. And then imagine the courage that can come to just, once that resentment is gone, to be able to be bold in addressing offenses. We're called to both. We're called to grace and justice. Forgiveness does not mean us sort of like saying, oh, I tolerate everything. Everything's okay. No, that's not what Jesus is calling us to. 
And that's why I think life in the community is so important. You know, it starts off saying where two or three are gathered in his name. And I have to say that the place that I've most experienced and been able to enact forgiveness is within my marriage, my two gathered in Jesus' name. And increasingly, I'm feeling that also in our community. I've experienced the joy of being forgiven in this community. And as I thought about it, I thought how my marriage is kind of like training wheels for learning to forgive. And I think that the, as we extend forgiveness and grace to one another, then it becomes training wheels for us to be people of radical forgiveness and radical grace and radical justice. So that people looking at us from the outside, they see the glory of God, they see grace and truth, they see the character of God expressed in our community and not just a twisted inwardness of people being polite and hating each other at the same time. So what do we do? I think the first thing is that we engage in the daily Kaddish, the daily Lord's Prayer. And as Colin showed us, it's the apogee of the Lord's Prayer to say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And I don't know about you, but I have to do that 77 times just to kind of like get it in my head. The same person you forgave yesterday, guess what? You're doing it again today, you know? And eventually to live in the middle of that grace. But today, I want to sort of, we want to celebrate that we can also as a community come to the communion table. Our liturgy is going to lead us into a confession of sin that helps us to realize the vastness of our debt what we have done and what we have left undone in thought, word, and deed. It's just so huge. And to realize, to be actually receive the absolution, to know that we stand with absolute certainty in the forgiveness and freedom, the grace that Jesus gives is so huge. And then, you know, we have this moment that afterwards that we kind of use, we pass the peace, right? And we kind of use it as a way of saying, hey, peace, bam, you know, way, way to go. I want us to think today that actually this is the moment at which we pass the peace of Christ to one another. We affirm not only that we stand forgiven, but we are affirming our determination to forgive one another and establish the peace of Christ within us. And then we come to the table. We take the broken body. And we, you know, receive the blood of forgiveness again and again, not just as individuals, but as a community where God is calling us to justice and grace. So as we move to prayer, I want to invite you to think of that person that has offended you, either in the community or outside. You can hold a tight fist if you like and just know how much this bugs you. And I want to invite you to release that person to the grace and justice of God, knowing that what you release on earth will be released in heaven for God's grace and justice to be effective. <laughs> 